Hey, y'all, Sam Sanders here in my apartment going through all of the streaming whatever services I pay for every month. I pay for Hulu. I pay for the extra Hulu thing where you get, like, live TV on it. I pay for Amazon Prime Video. I pay for Netflix. I pay for the fastest high-speed Internet to watch all of those things. But you know what? When I add it all up, I realize I listen to public radio more than I watch any of those streaming platforms combined. And here's the thing. Public radio, unlike all those other things, we don't send you a bill every month. All we do is every now and then ask you to give. So I'm doing that now. If you go right now to donate.npr.org slash Sam, you can give and support the original streaming service, Public Radio. Your donation helps local stations across the country. Also helps shows like this keep coming at you with fresh, new, hot content. Go to donate.npr.org slash Sam. Thank you. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, NPR national correspondents Kirk Siegler and Layla Fadel. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners, to my guests. My two guests, it's such a treat, are in an actual live studio with me, like, just across the room. That rarely happens. Hi, Sam. Hi, Hi, Sam. Hello to you both. Layla Fadel, NPR national correspondent covering culture, diversity, and race. And Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering the West and rural issues. We're glad to have you at NPR West today, Kirk, because you recently moved to Idaho to really cover the West. That's right. That's right. I'm here from uh, my new perch in Boise, where we're covering the West and rural America. I would say that you came back just to do this show, but he came back for the NPR West holiday party. <laughs> That's what it was. Let's I came honest. back to report a story with my esteemed colleague yes, next to me. Which we will talk about very soon. Uh, it's a story uh, that is a big deal across the entire country. We'll get there, get to that newsy subject. But first, Layla, Kirk, I want to play you both the wackiest audio I heard this week. Ladies and gentlemen, we do have a special request from one of our customers. It was on an airplane. Listen to us. Hustlers is one of our in-flight movie options. We greatly appreciate if you join us in supporting Ms. Lopez and watch Hustlers on our flight today. Did you hear are that? They, are they promoing Miss Lo- Jennifer Lopez and her movie? Yes. Is so, that a JetBlue flight? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so this week on a JetBlue flight, some JLo fan who was a passenger on the plane convinced the flight attendants to, on the loudspeaker in the airplane, ask everyone to watch JLo's movie Hustlers. Wow. This uh, super fan is Joseph Longo. He's a Mel Magazine staff writer and calls himself a JLo backup dancer. <laughs> he was super pumped that JLo got a Golden Globe nomination this week for her acting work in the movie Hustlers. And he says on this flight he was on, he was sure that there were Golden Globes voters. Not sure how he knew. But he um, figured if I urge all of them to watch this movie and vote for JLo, maybe it'll help her out. JetBlue was like, sure, why not? Is there an FCC rule about okay. this? I know. <laughs> Just let it be fun and happy. Okay. All right, all right. What what movie would y'all attempt to get an entire plane to watch? I don't know that I I have really bad taste. I'm not sure I'm going <laughs> to admit anything. I, I don't. I find myself repeatedly, uh, well, I'm pl- on planes a lot, but I find myself repeatedly watching uh, Lost in Translation. I don't know oh. that I would force the uh, entire plane to watch it. Lost in Translation, The Big Lebowski, Fargo. I'm always watching those on planes. 
Yeah. I always watch rom-coms on planes. Same. Escapist. Also, the idea of the folks in the air having any more in-air announcements bothers me because they already talk to me way too much. <laughs> I don't want to get the credit card. I don't care how many feet were up in the air. I just like just and now just, you're like, telling me what to watch. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. All right. We're going to start the show as we always do, asking my panelists to describe their week of news in only three words. Because my two guests have been working on a story together for a while, their three words are going to be shared on the same topic, correct? Yep. Layla, what are they? So we chose carrot or stick. And what's that about? Well, uh, Kirk and I have both been reporting on the growing homelessness crisis and this sort of trend of how much you police Mm -hmm. the homelessness crisis and how much you so-called criminalize being homeless and how much you actually help solve the underlying issue. Yeah. And this is big in the news this month because the Supreme Court might take up a case that dictates what cities can do to fight homelessness. Right, Kirk? Right. So there's a case out of uh, Boise, Idaho, where I'm now based, um, and it has huge implications across the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and potentially across the country. Basically what it does, it goes back 10 years to when uh, a group of homeless people sued the city for ticketing them for camping, mostly along the Boise River. Um, The argument was that they didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm -hmm. At that time, the city's only shelter was Christian and some people didn't feel comfortable going in there Mm -hmm. for a myriad of reasons. Uh, But there also just wasn't shelter space available. Mm -hmm. Um, This wound its way through the courts back and forth. uh, But the important thing is last Last year, uh, the Ninth Circuit, a federal appeals court, ruled that a city cannot ticket homeless people for camping uh, in public places, for sleeping in public places, if there are no shelter vets available. And that Ninth Circuit covers what states and areas? It covers pretty much most of the West, from Idaho, Washington, uh, Hawaii, uh, Nevada. And yeah, okay. I was going to lead to California, <laughs> where the homelessness uh, crisis is at a, an know, epidemic. Epic, yeah, epidemic yeah. proportion. It's bad everywhere, it but is. here it's, it's really bad, extremely bad. And yeah. so this mid-sized, you know, relatively small city mm-hmm. uh, is worried that they're going to start seeing the encampments that we see, the large tent cities that we see in West Coast cities and major West Coast cities. Is that potential? I mean, like, is there potential for that? Like, how there's, how, how there's, big is the crisis for Boise? There certainly is. Uh, it may not be as eye-opening when you go around Boise as you do just right here in Los Angeles, just right outside of our studio. Uh, however, the underlying issues in Boise are the same as Spokane, Washington, as Seattle, as Los Angeles. They are experiencing an unprecedented uh, affordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a shortage like no one there has ever seen, at least in modern times. Uh, In Idaho in particular, it's a conservative state. There isn't a lot of public money for addiction services, uh, mental health services. And the housing shortage and the affordable housing crisis is is a big pinch there. And that's Mm -hmm. the underlying issue of all this. And Layla, you've been covering the crisis here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some parallels to what's going on in Boise, but this is an extreme case here in L.A. Yeah, I mean, California is home to probably about a quarter of the homeless population across the country. And L.A. and New York sort of battle for the number one spot. Really, And of those sort of top ten cities that have really big homeless populations, most of those are in California and on the West Coast. And L.A.'s uh, LA County has mm-hmm. some like 60,000 people that, really? are, that are homeless. Wow. And is that more than, than like 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, it's more than last year. Uh, really? Los Angeles, the city, 16% jump 
from wow. last year. Every wow. single day in L.A., uh -huh. 150 people are entering homelessness, and the same number are not coming out of it. Really? And so that drastic uptick, when I read these headlines about homelessness, it seems like there are upticks all across the country right now because yeah. of housing affordability. And, and basically the rub out here in particular is that none of these cities are now in compliance with federal law, right? How so? so? Uh, well, the homeless population is so big that in some cases, uh, cities are trying to enforce people from camping on sidewalks and they may ticket them, but there aren't shelter beds available. So under this uh, ruling, that's unconstitutional. It accounts for cruel and unusual punishment if you're ticketing people. Yeah. Well, so cities like LA, mm -hmm. ultimately the issue here, like you said, is about affordability. I spoke to um, General Dogon, a, uh, an advocate from Los Angeles Community Action Network, center of Skid Row, that known as like the capital of homelessness. Oh, yeah. and this I is, live a few blocks down. Right. And so this is what he had to say about why this is happening. Mm -hmm. I tell people all the time, everybody ain't on drugs and everybody ain't lost their mind. 71% of the people is homeless in the city of Los Angeles because the rent is too damn high. That's it and that's all. Is that true? Well, um, the most recent homelessness count in the county actually did say 71 percent Wow, is based on affordability, accessible housing. But, you know, those are disputed numbers. Some will mm -hmm. say it's a variety of factors. Mm -hmm. And it's still that count still said 29 percent um, are deal wow. people dealing with addiction, mental issues. But ultimately, when you interview a lot of people out there, they'll say, I got the one guy I spoke to. I got hit by a car. I was a truck driver. Couldn't do my job. Yeah. And, 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 and sometimes it's a few hundred dollars that makes a difference. And, and, and we don't see uh, all of the homeless people like in in smaller cities. There are people living in hotels. We tend to in focus the on the encampments. Yeah. There are people living in hotels and cars. And there's a frustration um, amongst the plaintiffs in particular in this case and the homeless advocates. Uh, I think most people are homeless advocates, but formally we call them the people who represent the homeless. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, uh, I, I spoke with uh, the civil rights attorney in Boise who first brought this case. His name is Howard Beladoff, and he points to a, an underlying frustration in a lot of these cases that, you know, and part of the reason I'm in Los Angeles was to interview the high-powered L.A. law firm that Boise hired to represent them. And Wait, to Boise hired this, an L.A. law firm to, to do appeal, this case. Yeah, to appeal this case to the Supreme Court. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. There are other examples of this across the Ninth Circuit. All of this money going to spend on legal fees and enforcement. And not uh, just like building houses for people. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's hear what he had to say there. It seems like more and more cities have taken the punitive approach to address the problem instead of addressing the problem. Well, this gets back to y'all's three words, carrot or stick. Right. What is the method that works? Just giving people housing resources or money or, you know, criminalizing some of the things that the homeless find themselves having to do? What actually does work? What do we know? Well, clearly nobody's figured it out yet. <laughs> but I mean, I think when you talk to homeless advocates... Uh, they'll say, let's stop doing this distractionary stuff. Let's stop going to the courts and wasting money. We all know what the problem is. People are poor. Rent is too high. And we need to solve it that way. But then when you talk to city officials, they'll say, but we have to walk a fine line here because rent is too high and affordability is yeah. an issue, but we don't have the beds yet. We don't have the housing yet. Yeah. So how do we how protect do navigate that? both the rights of yeah. the homeless yeah. And the rights of people, business owners, residents who are walking through these encampments yeah. as well. Well, and then you'll see homeowners, especially in a place like L.A., they'll vote to approve money to house the homeless. But, not next but to then them. they'll say, don't put that shelter next to me. Right. Don't put it there, I, you know. I think there's a growing 
consensus that this has to become a national issue, that there has to be uniform, a national policy to address this. I think for years and years, it's been this city over here, this state over here, this and this, but it's all interconnected, you know, in terms of housing, in terms of uh, mental health services. We know that you can't just put somebody who's been living on the street uh, who may have addiction issues or any other mental health issues or anything, you can't just give them a house and think they'll be fine. Uh, You know, you have to have like a wraparound support and that costs a lot of money. And then you got to find a place to build the housing. Yeah. Uh, And it's a lot. It's complex. I wonder, we have been in the midst of an economic boom by many measures for several years, if not approaching a decade. You know, the unemployment rate is really, really low. The stock market keeps going gangbusters. And yet we have this crisis, which proves that like a lot of folks still aren't making enough money. What is the explanation for it? And like, what is the explanation for all of these rising housing costs? Well, the banks are making a lot of money, I think, from <laughs> the housing costs. But the the unemployment uh, is really low. But when you parse the numbers a little bit farther, in many communities, sure, there are a lot of jobs, but they are not high-paying jobs. Without, They're service they might not have benefits. Benefits. So there are people making a lot of money in a certain part of society, while at, uh, as the middle class is, we know it's getting squeezed more and more, uh, the lower income side. Yeah. Uh, and, and there just isn't enough housing. Uh, you talk to any mayor of any political stripe and they'll point out in any town that there, we don't have enough housing. We stopped building housing uh, houses uh, dramatically after the Great Recession. To close, I'm wondering where the federal government plays into all of this. You know, there was talk of the Trump White House doing something around homelessness. But uh, just this week, there was a new bill released in the Senate that proposes, among other things, giving financial aid or grants to families facing eviction. And the idea is that there are some remedies that we can give to folks that will keep them from becoming homeless in the first place, like money. Um, It it remains to be seen if this can move out of the Senate and pass because Congress doesn't pass too much of anything these days. (laughs) But perhaps there's action from D.C. coming. It's interesting. We just don't hear much about housing on the presidential campaign trail. Uh, But yet when I visit any community, any neighborhood in a city or a smaller town, I was just in rural Oregon the other day Mm -hmm. and uh, the city officials there were drilling me with, we don't have housing. Yeah. It's so expensive. And it's everywhere. I was back home in San Antonio, Texas for Thanksgiving and had conversations with friends that live there about San Antonio's growing homelessness crisis. Mm -hmm. And growing up in Texas, I remember never seeing anyone homeless because housing was so cheap there and you could build a McMansion on a farm somewhere and just live. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy. It's crazy. Even in my parents' like suburb, Mm -hmm. an hour outside of Chicago, Mm. they're seeing it. Yeah, yeah. It's time for a break. Coming up, we get into the holiday spirit by talking about the flu. It's that season. <laughs> uh, turns out there's a lot you may not know about the flu or the flu shot. We will educate you, clear up some misconceptions about this very common illness. After the break, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn at the end of your first year? Plus, it's automatic, and there's no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Millions of people a year are getting their cash back matched like rain falling from the sky. Cash back match only from Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Support also comes from The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment. 
Shop luxury clothing, accessories, and fine art at unreal prices. From your favorite designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Cartier, and hundreds more. And the Real Reels team of authenticators from around the globe ensure every item is authenticated daily. Shop in-store, on the app, or at therealreal.com and receive 20% off select items with promo code REAL. On our brand new season of the StoryCorps podcast from NPR, you'll hear challenging conversations between friends, family members, and sometimes people who could have easily been enemies as they bridge divides and build connections where you'd least expect it. Episodes are available every Tuesday. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders in studio with two great guests this weekend. Tell folks who you are. I'm Leila Fadel. I'm a journalist with the National Desk at NPR covering race and identity. All right. I'm Kirk Sigler. I'm also a reporter with the National Desk alongside Leila, and I cover rural America and the West. You say it so well, rural. I can't. It's, it, it's a tongue twister for me. Rural. Lots of practice. Lots of practice. Lots of practice. Uh, question for both of you, Kirk and Layla. Have you gotten your flu shot yet? Yes, for the first time, actually, this year. is you the just first year I've ever ha- gotten a flu shot. Did so it hurt? You're probably going to get the flu. I know, right? <laughs> actually, <laughs> sorry to be that guy, but actually, this is people think that, but it's not quite true. Okay. On that note, have you gotten your flu shot? I did. Uh, it was at the NPR Wellness Fair, I believe. <laughs> Plug. Nerd. Look at this happy employee. <laughs> Anyways, it's funny that you bring up the point that you made, Kirk. Uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about the flu and the flu shot. And a colleague of ours recently set to uh, dispel some of those myths. Uh, I'm talking about Maddie Sophia. She is the host of NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. It's a brand new podcast. Really, really good. Science news. It's fun. Uh, they had an entire episode on Maddie's show all about the flu recently, uh, clearing up misconceptions and telling us why getting that flu shot is a thing you have to do. So here's my chat with Maddie about the flu. Maddie Sophia, hi. Hello, how are you? I'm excellent, Sam. You had an entire episode about the flu recently on Shortwave. You took questions from listeners and you had some experts help you answer those questions? Absolutely, yeah. I talked to a woman named Dr. Nicole Bouvier. She's at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And she not only researches the flu, Sam, she also treats patients. I do. That's kind of like showing off a little bit at this point. (laughs) Well, it's the best of both worlds, I think, (laughs) because I really like patients, but I don't like waking up early. So the lab is perfect for that. So Dr. Bouvier knows a lot about what the flu does to our bodies and how scientists are trying to kind of outsmart it. Okay. I don't know a lot about the flu. Uh, Like my biggest question for you, first and foremost, is how do you know if you have the flu or just the cold? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a good question because a lot of the symptoms are really similar. So the flu and the cold are caused by two completely different viruses, um, but they both infect your respiratory tract. So meaning they affect like your mouth, your lungs, your nose, your throat. And the cold pretty much only messes with you in that area. But the flu, on the other hand, being the garbage virus that it is, <laughs> doesn't stop at your respiratory tract. It'll mess you right up, Sam. So with influenza, you get sort of what we call systemic symptoms, which are things like fever, lethargy, not feeling like eating, feeling like you get hit by a truck, muscle aches, headaches that um, really with a common cold you tend not to get. I mean, I feel like I got hit by a truck, you know, at the end of every work week, Maddie. (laughs) (laughs) 
Honestly, Sam, it's worse than that. I'm going to okay. tell you. Okay. I'm going to tell okay. you. So the thing she said, the fever, is pretty key. So not everybody who has the flu gets a fever, but Dr. Bouvier told me that if she does see a patient with a fever and a cough during flu season, there's something like an 80% chance that person has the flu. Cough, fever together. During flu season. Might be the flu. Oh, yeah. All right. Might be the flu. How big is the flu? How many folks get it every year? I always hear of like people dying from the flu, mm-hmm. but I've never seen someone die of yeah. the flu. I mean, I think that we forget just like how big of a deal the flu is. So last year, this is kind of a current estimate that might change, but the CDC says that 45 million people got sick with the flu last season, which is roughly the population of the entire state of California, right? Mm. It gets a lot of people sick. And about 61,000 people died last year for the flu. It was a really bad season. And, you know, the flu and pneumonia consistently are in like the top 10 causes of death in the United States. Man. So. It is pretty serious. Okay, so then the fix for this is more flu shots. I know I'm supposed to get it. I got one this year. Mm-hmm. Um, in your episode of Shortwave about the flu, you talked about how that flu shot and vaccine is made. It involves eggs? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sam, okay, so nobody wants me to walk through the entire process <laughs> of how the vaccines... We would die here, Sam, of old age. Not the flu. Old no. age. <laughs> yes. I mean, you probably a little sooner than me, honestly. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> but, and I oop. <laughs> But yes, the most common way we make flu vaccines starts with live viruses that are used to infect eggs. It takes months. It's a process that's been used for probably about 70 years. And a lot of scientists are actually trying to find better ways to make flu vaccines. All right. So let's get into some uh, misconceptions about the flu shot. Sure. Biggest being, and I hear this all the time from friends and family, well, if I get the flu shot, I might get the flu. Yeah. Like people think the shot will give them the flu. I mean, it's just it's not true. So especially so for the flu shot specifically, when they do process those eggs after the virus has grown up, there are multiple steps of killing the virus. In most cases, they even bust that virus up into tiny little bits and pieces and then kind of scoop out the bits that are important for the vaccine. So after all that processing is done, there's no live virus left in that flu shot. And even if there was, Sam, the flu shot goes in your arm. Influenza viruses are designed or or optimized to infect your respiratory tract. If you put them somewhere else, they're not going to be able to grow the same way that they are in your respiratory tract, and you're not going to get the symptoms that you get. Aha. Uh-huh. So you can, there's no way you can get the flu from a flu shot. Okay. But even if I go through all this, go to my doctor's office, get that flu go shot. Go through survive all the this. Pain, the pain. <laughs> Uh, I can still get the flu after the flu shot? Yeah. So Okay, Maddie, then what was the use of this conversation? <laughs> so getting the flu shot reduces your chance of getting the flu by about 40 to 60%. Not enough. When the flu is picked the right strains. But listen up, Sam. It's not easy to design this flu shot. Twice a year, the World Health Organization gets together a bunch of these scientists who share data from, like, influenza surveillance sites throughout the entire world and decide, like, okay, these are the types of flu we think are going to go around next flu season. And then they develop that vaccine. But even if you do get the flu, Sam, and you've Uh had your flu shot, that flu shot can make the flu less terrible. In the people who still get flu despite having the flu shot... It actually can make you less sick than you would have been if you didn't get the flu shot at all. You know, if you were going to be in bed for three days, you might be in bed for two days. See? 
Okay. And time is money, Sam. I'll take that. It is. That is true. (laughs) And so that's mostly been shown in people that are at really high risk for bad flu complications like pneumonia. But Dr. Bouvier told me it's probably true for just young, healthy folks like you, Sam Sanders. I'm not young and healthy. I'm old and tired. (laughs) And the last thing to know about the flu and the flu shot, Sam, is that even if you are young and healthy and think like, ah, it's a hassle, I'll be fine if I get the flu, you are the person that could be passing that virus on to somebody for whom the flu could be a really big deal, like a new baby you're going to meet at a Christmas party, or your grandmother, people like that. Those people who are at higher risk of complications, you don't want to be the one who then goes ahead and gives them the flu. You're not just protecting yourself. You're protecting other people who either can't get the vaccine themselves or, for whatever reason, they won't respond to it quite as well. Don't be that guy, Sam. Okay. I believe her. I do. (laughs) Last question for you, Maddie. Have you ever had the flu? And if so... What kind of patient is Maddie? What kind of sick person is Maddie? <laughs> well, I get my flu shot every year, Sam. Proud of Sometimes you. I yell, immune system, activate when I, they do it. And <laughs> they really like when I do that. Uh-huh. So I haven't gotten it in maybe like three years. But I do remember being a dream patient. Very cooperative. Okay. Not stubborn at all. I think I remember being described as graceful and kind. I'm a Grinch when I get sick. <laughs> I'm a Grinch when I'm not sick. I was about to say, <laughs> let's act like this. <laughs> Thank you, Maddie Sophia. Your podcast is called Shortwave. Listeners, listen to it every weekday for science and fun. All right, Sam. I appreciate you. Likewise. Bye. Thanks again to Maddie Sophia, host of one of NPR's newest podcasts, Shortwave. It's time for a break now. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. B-R-B. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Behind the Irishman, the official companion podcast for Netflix's new film, The Irishman. Co-star and comedian Sebastian Maniscalco pulls back the curtain on how the film was made with director Martin Scorsese and co-stars Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci sharing their experiences filming the upcoming crime drama. Behind the Irishman is available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts with new episode drops every Monday. This message comes from NPR sponsor Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders teams confront hard facts in conflict and crisis zones. When others look away, they step in to act. In emergencies and their aftermath, they provide essential health care, run hospitals and clinics, perform surgery, battle epidemics, carry out vaccination campaigns, and more. Information on their efforts and campaigns in over 70 countries can be found at doctorswithoutborders.org. Hey, y'all, before we get back to the show, I want to remind you one more time of how you can keep this show coming to you every week by supporting the work of your local NPR member station. To do that, go to donate.npr.org slash Sam or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders in studio with two guests, Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering the West and rural issues, and Leila Fadel, NPR national correspondent covering culture, diversity, and race. 
my friends, it is time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Really made it dramatic that time for you. Really, really drug it out. Um, I have anxiety about the trivia. Because last time we failed so miserably. I don't think I've ever so gotten So I Twitter stalked right. Sam and got no hints. <laughs> Either way, y'all still get a paycheck every two weeks. That's it's not true. like NPR. I domestic. need to win. <laughs> Can I just Carol instead? Oh, fun fact about Kirk, and every listener should know this. Um, every year around Christmas time, Kirk organizes like caroling really he yeah. gets a group of folks together so and they great. just go door to door singing a christmas song Is that true? St- yes due to like logistical and operational issues this year we may be <laughs> postponing it for a year which burns me to say but. there was one year i was at kirk's holiday party and he's like all right it's time to go caroling and i was like i'm not going <laughs> you were the only one and i just like, stayed in couch. his house <laughs> and watched netflix on his couch while they went out to sing anyway i digress uh y'all know how this game works i share a quote from the week you have to guess who said that or get a keyword from the story. The winner, per usual, gets absolutely nothing. We're low budget here at Public Radio. No <laughs> buzzers. Just yell out your answer, okay? okay? First quote, just tell me what we're talking about here. When we saw them today, you could see some loose feathers in the glue around the hat. It's definitely a concern. Uh, in the glue around the hat. And feathers. And feathers. Are we talking about, like, royalty? Uh, the royal family? These are the least royal of the bird kingdom. Is this pigeons or something? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. yeah. Y'all least royal of the bird family. <laughs> I'm going to get some right. hate mail you about right, from, from like pigeon, pigeon lovers. Pigeon lovers, yeah, you're, you're you in trouble. You guessed right, but you don't know why. No, I have no idea. So this story is from your old stomping grounds, Las Vegas area. Oh, what happened? So there's this really crazy story happening out around Las Vegas. Someone is gluing tiny multicolored cowboy hats on pigeons' heads. Oh, wait. I did see this okay. story. I yes. totally forgot. Yes. It's That's bananas. Insane. And so, like, there were these videos floating around this week of these pigeons and cowboy hats. And at first, everyone's like, oh, my God, it's cute. But then you realize... They're glued on, and that's pretty cruel. Anyways, that quote comes from Mariah Hillman. She runs an animal rescue service called Lofty Hopes, and they nurse pigeons and doves back to health, and they've been helping uh, try to figure out what's going on with these pigeons and the cowboy hats. How did these people, yeah. how, how did they catch doing? Them? Exactly. Yeah, I was thinking, right. how did you keep a pigeon still to They're glue carrier them? pigeons? Like, do they, are they already trained to, like, fly I, I to, don't. like, get the cowboy hats? I mean, you can do that, you know. <laughs> You can tr- you could theoretically train a carrier pigeon to like fly to the you know country western store get a hat fly back. You can't train it to glue it on its head though. True. I don't care how annoying pigeons are. You don't do that to them. No. Yeah. Isn't that weird? It's so mean. I hope those pigeons get revenge. Like they have a way that? to get revenge. You better crap all over <laughs> like that dude's house. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> all right. First point goes to Layla. Yay! <laughs> You're really excited about I, um, that. I like I'm it. competitive. Yes. All right. Second quote. Um, you can just guess the word that we're talking about in this quote. I have to say, it's surprising to me. It's a word we all know and love. So many people were talking about this word. Hint, it's the word of the year. They and there. Yes, they. Okay, Layla. She came to win. Mm-hmm. Kirk, where are you at? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sitting right here and I'm not winning. <laughs> so that quote comes from Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster, the dictionary. He was talking about their announcement this week that the Merriam-Webster 2019 Word of the Year is they. 
um, they apparently had a 313% increase in lookups on Merriam-Webster.com this year compared to last year. And we know that they is used increasingly to refer to people who are trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming. And this year has been a big year of acceptance for those in that community. Yeah. They. I'm into it. Mm -hmm. Me too. I like to use the word y'all. Also not gender specific, very neutral in terms of gender. And it's nice and welcoming. I agree. All right. uh, Last quote. This one's funny. Uh, This is a fill in the blank. It was a unified command decision to call out a secondary bus to be dispatched to pick up the stranded students and remotely transport to the local high school. At this time, the incident is being ruled as a prank as blank was discharged on the bus. What was discharged on this school bus that made the whole bus have to be evacuated? A mm. thing young boys are a prone to cushion? overuse. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Something that young bo- teenage boys use a lot to excess, and it smells a lot. Axe body yes. spray? Yes, yes. Axe body spray. <laughs> There was a. I have teenage nephews. There was a. I have it on right now. Oh, I figured, Kirk. There was a school bus in Paris, Florida, in which some young kids were trying to pull a prank. They sprayed so much body spray they had to evacuate the bus. A few of the kids had to get treated for mild respiratory irritation. Everyone was okay, but like, ugh. That's a PSA if you ever. If you ever heard one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kirk, how old were you when you stopped wearing Axe Body Spray? <laughs> do I have to answer that? Yes, you do. I mean, you say it like it's past week. tense. <laughs> I can say I've never worn Axe Body Spray. Oh, I, Sorry, used to, I used to slather that on, man. Really? Well, it's it's like one of those things. Is it's it like so a rite of passage? You can't stop. And they say on the bottle, you can actually spray it anywhere. So then you spray it everywhere. <laughs> Okay, moving along. Anyway, that quote came from the Parish Fire District in Parish, Florida, talking about the school bus in Parish that was fumigated by Axe Body Spray. <laughs> um, Layla, you came into this game very, very nervous, but i happy to tell you, you won. Thank you! Yes, and you got all three. Can you say she won when technically neither of us really knew much of the context? No, I knew. Wow. Wow. No, I knew Am I throwing shade? Layla won the I knew popular the vote and the electoral college. Yeah, I won both. Sore loser I knew the, the dictionary one, and I did. Yeah, that's true. I only knew one for real. Like I had yeah. actually paid so attention let's, let's to that one. That, let's Word keep that of the year. Just take the win. And you knew Just take none. the win. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> Kirk, you knew none. Sore loser. All right, that concludes who said that. My favorite game. Congratulations, Layla. You get nothing but bragging Thank rights. Thank you. I You're like welcome. bragging rights. Yes, yes, yes. All right, now it's time to end the show as we always do. Each week, we ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They always do. Brent, hit the tape. Hi, Sam. This is Grace from L.A. The best part about my week was taking my last final for Calculus 2. Now I don't have to think about converging or integrating anything, at least until early February when I'll be taking Calculus 3. Cheers to Calculus-Free Holidays. Hello, my name is Christina, and I'm calling from Gaithersburg, Maryland. This is Megan from Boise, Idaho. This is Sarah in Atlanta, Georgia. The best thing that happened to me all week was that I I started started a a new job. job. The best news I received this week was a job offer. I paid off my car. I graduated from nursing school. My sister had her first baby, and I'm an auntie. Best part of my week is having my six-month-old son's fever break. My 12-month-old daughter slept through the night. Hey Sam, this is Dan in Fayetteville, Arkansas. 
The best part of my week was finally getting home after spending five months and driving 12,052 miles to visit 15 national parks. Your show made a great soundtrack for the drive. Thanks. Hi, Sam. This is Lori from Centralia, Washington. The best part of my week was seeing a short little video of my first great-grandbaby. And of course, she's the most beautiful granddaughter ever. Great-granddaughter. I'm old. (laughs) Anyway, you have a great week, Sam, and everybody there. And a great holiday, too. Thanks for the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, isn't that sweet? I like when it's a lot of kids stuff. That is really my favorite. I love listening to those. Many thanks to all the listeners you heard there. Grace, Christina, Megan, Sarah, Jessica, Michelle, Erica, Katie, Liz, Dan, and Lori. Listeners, share the best part of your week with this show at any point throughout any week. Record yourself on your phone and then send that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, Mama, we made it another episode in the books. It's time to say goodbye to both of you. Um, Thank you all for being here. Leila Fadel, NPR national correspondent covering culture, diversity, and race. Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering the West and rural issues. So excited. Uh, In a few hours, we'll all be at the holiday party. I have the ugliest sweater. You're going to be so excited by it. Is it new? It's the same one. (laughs) Oh, you have like an annual ugly sweater? I have an annual ugly sweater. There's like an attachment to it. There is. It's so fun. Don't run Uh, it. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you all for being here. Thanks to the folks that are the best part of my week every week, the folks that helped me make this show. Uh, the show was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry, who, secret, is having a birthday very soon. Happy birthday, Anjali. I hope you're partying hard right now. Um, our fearless editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. Our engineer is Josh Newell and Leo Diagula. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners. Till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. 